The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Father, we come to you now in your word, and we would ask for your help by the power of the Holy Spirit to love it, breathe it, submit to it, and not try to justify our disobedience of it. We need your help. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've talked, and if, by the way, if you want to make sure that we're on the right text, you can go back last week and listen to verses 11 and 12. I did that just to make sure in light of the seriousness of this text and the moment that we're living in, and it's a good thing when in the providence of God He makes you look at His Word straight in the face and examine your heart. So, so where have we been in chapter 2? I want to get us caught up to where we've been so we can get this in the context. In chapter 2, We've talked a lot about newness, new taste buds for Jesus that are not in step with the world, a new people of priests from all the peoples, a new nation from the many nations, a new identity as sojourners and exiles. Last week we talked about how all of that results in a chosen race that fights against the ugly sin in their own hearts and fills the world around them with beautiful deeds that shows the beauty of our King and Savior. You can't make sense of the New Testament without realizing that such an identity shift has happened and such a transfer of our hope has happened that this place we live now, wherever it is, is no longer our true home. You can't read the New Testament and not get that and make sense of any of it. And I'm not just talking in this moment about America. I'm talking about places like Brazil, like Linda Oatley, who Pastor David just mentioned in his prayer, who has been serving there faithfully for years and is now dying from a, from a serious illness and is going to stay there. And her words are, I'm ready to go home. And she doesn't mean come back here for a few last weeks. She means I'm ready to go home to meet Jesus, to see Jesus. This is our identity. We talked last week about three temptations we could have during this time as a people out of step with our culture, a sojourn and an exile. We could have a temptation of assimilation that goes with the cultural flow instead of loyalty to our identity as citizens of heaven. We could have an avoidance that just tries to distance ourselves from all the ugliness out there and not engage in it. Or we could have an aggressiveness that takes the stance of defensive anger grasping to protect its territory. And we said that instead of that, what Peter's going to call for in how we relate to the government and how we relate as masters and slaves next week, and how we relate in our homes, and how we relate to the broad culture where persecution is going to come. Instead of aggressiveness or avoidance or assimilation, he would say, let's fill this place with humble, courageous lives of beautiful deeds that shine forth the character of Jesus Christ and show beyond a shadow of a doubt that our hope is in him. That show beyond a shadow 
of a doubt. Do you see these desires in yourself? Can you be honest? I can be honest during this time. Like, do you feel the the pressure to just assimilate? Just go with the flow. Go with that idea or that thought when you're around that group of people because it's just so much easier. Do you feel the temptation to just avoid, like, man, it's crazy out there and I'm just going to go in my room by myself with my Bible and my coffee and stay there forever? Or maybe you feel this sense of aggressiveness. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you won't. You won't take what's mine. I will rise up and I will show you. What will keep us from giving into these temptations? Well, the first two chapters of 1 Peter will. Remember your living hope. Remember your inheritance. Remember your new identity in Jesus. Like this actually has to sink in. So it's not just something you hear, but it's who you are. It's what you wake up and go to sleep thinking about. Not the news and not COVID and not riots and not all these things. You wake up and you go to sleep thinking, I belong to Jesus. I don't know much right now, but I belong to him. He's purchased me. I'm his. He's purchased these people. My cause to love my neighbors and love those around me. That's what I want to focus on and love. It has to sink in. A hope in this place as your home, whatever this place is, wherever this place is, no matter how much you like it there, will lead to all sorts of distorted reactions that are not driven by a heart that seeks to bring glory to God with the humility of Jesus. If you're not feeling like Jesus is your home, like this place is not your home, it will lead to all sorts of distorted reactions when the stuff around you gets out of place. This place is not your home and I hope that lands in you is really good news. It's not your hope. Even America, with all its amazing feats of democracy and all of its warts, will one day be a footnote in the story of God redeeming a new nation from all the nations. That's the story of history. And if I'm saying that and it makes you want to bristle and want to say, No, Dave, this is my home. You just don't care about our cultural moment enough. You're underestimating the evil going on. Don't you care about the generations where your kids are going to grow up into? If someone might say that to me, I would say two things. One, I want us to engage in this place with beautiful words and beautiful deeds that show the beauty of Jesus. I'm not telling you to not care or not engage. I want to see the beauty of Christ fill this land, fill these suburbs, fill your neighborhood, fill your cul-de-sac, fill your soccer team, fill your baseball team, fill your PTA meetings, fill your place of employment. I see Jesus fill this place, not telling you not to engage. Two, I'm not underestimating the evil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always at work in hearts and places. I am simply choosing to remind myself over and over again, it will not have the final word because of the power of my king who reigns over all. That's my hope for my kids. That they might come to know him. It's my hope for you, for your kids, for this church, that they might come to know him and he reigns over it all. So I can think... And I can pray, and I can talk to my neighbors, and I can seek to influence the world around me in love without a white-knuckle grip on this place as if it were my hope. 
This posture puts us in the best place to love the place we're in now as Christians with another primary citizenship and a different permanent address. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Isn't that our hope? And so that's where I want to see us navigate these times. We have to find a way. I don't know a better way to say it. We have to find a way to be distinctly Christian in these moments and in these times we're in. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into two points. We're going to look at submitting to institutions to the glory of God, and then we're going to look at living as servants of God to the glory of God. So let's look at verses 13 to 15 first, submitting to institutions for the glory of God. Here's what it says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Notice three things I'm going to point out in these verses. First, notice the purpose of institutions at their very best. It says to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, Peter is speaking these words in a time when persecution of Christians was not likely in full swing yet, but it's really close, and there was still, if you want to go back and study history and go, well, he must have been talking about a much better government than ours, go back and study the Roman government, and you will find all sorts of corruption, all sorts of blatant sinful idolatry, and persecution beginning in Rome, yet he still recognizes, I think, that, that these governments are generally a gift. Even though they're not perfect, they're not Jesus, <laughs> they're not God, this isn't a theocracy, but they're generally a gift. We can see this in history. Places with no governance to punish evil and praise good have much more chaos and pain than places with imperfect governments. So Peter is saying, Here's their job. Here's what they're doing. He's not saying they're going to be perfect, but he's, he's holding them up as a gift. In other words, their purpose is really to bring about justice. That is, their purpose is to uphold and praise what is good according to God and oppose and punish what is evil according to God. Their, their job is to bring about justice when they're doing it the best they can. Romans 13, 1-2 says that God appoints them. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Same command. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So God ordains institutions, governments, to uphold good, to punish evil, that is to do justice, even though no government has ever done this anywhere close to God's perfect righteousness, they're still a gift compared to no government. Second, notice God's purpose in our submission. This is an interesting purpose, and it's probably something for us to consider all the more today. It says that we should silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what does he mean by that? What well, was true then and it's true now 
that people will look for reasons to point out how Christians are bad for society. How we're bad for society. Our views, our ideas will not line up with culture. They're, they're bad, they're superstitious, they're unloving. Therefore, even in the midst of corruption and oppression as a people that would be coming, God would have Christians do good as they submit to the government wherever it is not asking them to sin. I want you to think about that. Do good in submitting to the government wherever it is not asking you to sin. Why? Because of the kind of witness that will be. A government seeking to oppress and persecute a particular group of Christians and that group standing against anything that is sin and yet submitting to whatever is not asking them to sin even when it's not convenient. Right? That, wouldn't that be a witness? Here they are getting oppressed and persecuted, and yes, there are things they stand against. They won't go there. They won't do that. They say it's about Jesus. But man, in everything else, happy to submit, happy to do good, not disengaging. They're, they're, they're moving in to their society. They're, they're loving each other. They're submitting to all these other things, so maybe they're not just an angry group that gets upset whenever they don't have control. Maybe, maybe it really is about Jesus. This was certainly true as persecution ramped up. You can go back and read historians. This is a fast, if you're a Christian, a fascinating time of history to read about. You can read historians who write of Christians that are being opposed and oppressed purposefully they're being blamed by the emperor as evildoers who stand against society. And then historians, every once in a while, they'll, they'll break into these, these little uh, records of Christians. It's like they can't help themselves. It's like, but there's something divine about them. There's something about this people. I mean, they're, they're blamed as evildoers. People say they're superstitious. People say they're horrible for society, but there's something divine because of the good they do peacefully and the submission they still give to the emperor and the way they love each other. They, they still submit to him where he's not asking them to go against their religion. They still do good in the society. They still seek the welfare of their city. What is with these people? There's something divine. They don't make sense. I can't put them with any other political group. What is going on? You just feel this in the historians who don't know what to do with Christians. Is that what they'd write about us? What is with these people? <laughs> Can't explain them. So we've seen the purpose of institutions to carry out justice. We've seen God's purpose that we do good and we silence the accusations of those who would want to show us as evildoers. And third, we need to see the general posture we should take. So here's the command. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So our general posture should be submission where these institutions are not asking us to commit sin. I would just have to do gymnastics to make it say anything else. Our general posture should be submission where these institutions are not asking us to commit sin. We should let that sink in. But deeper than that, and something for us to consider as a people, is the why that comes right after it. 
Right? Be subject, why? For the Lord's sake. For his sake. Our disposition of submission to the governing authorities is not ultimately for our sake or for society's sake. It's for the Lord's sake. You remember Peter was one of the apostles, right, who was so confused about what was going on with Jesus because he was supposed to bring a, a military, a political revolution to Rome. They were like, what are you doing? What do you mean you're going to die? You can't die because then you can't overturn the government and reign as king. That makes no sense. Instead, Jesus was going to build a different kind of kingdom through his death and resurrection and by the power of his spirit. Jesus who reigns over all says all authority has been given to me. I, I created it all. I own it all. Jesus who would say, as Peter comes and is talking to him about the text, Jesus would say, is it, is it the sons who pay or is it other people? Peter would say other people. Well, then the sons are free. Implication, don't pay the tax? No. <laughs> Implication, Whilst there's no dishonor, so we continue to be a witness in this society, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God, not giving up any of his territory, simply saying, I've put him here. We can respect and submit to the people I've put here. Rather than establishing the nation of Israel again for the world to come and see, he instead saves a new nation and tells them to go and tell. Go and make disciples wherever you are and honor the authority I appoint there. So this is the new kingdom way. Wherever you are, shine the beauty of Christ with your disposition of submission to the authorities when they are not asking you to sin. This kind of mindset gives so much more credibility when we must take stands where there is clearly sin. We're going to stand against some things when we are. We're going to stand against some things where we just can't go because Jesus says you can't go there. But when we do that, from a posture of general submission where they're not asking us to sin, suddenly we don't look like a people just angrily shaking our fists at the political party we don't look, we don't like, but we look like a people glad to submit to the authorities God has put in place as long as they do not ask us to deny our Savior or enter into sin. Suddenly our witness means something. It's distinct. Institutions are appointed by God to bring about justice, God's purpose for us is to do good, to silence those who would profile us as evil troublemakers. And one of the main ways we do this is with a posture of submission to the authorities when they're not asking us to sin for the Lord's sake. Point number two, live as free people, as servants of God. So verse 16 says, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now we can get to the root of where this kind of heart can come from. Where does this kind of distinct Christian heart come from? The heart that can gladly submit to governing authorities is the heart that sees itself as having a master much greater than the governing authorities. In other words, the way you'll be able to submit gladly to the governing authorities is because you know you don't ultimately submit to them at all because you have a greater master. You have a greater king. Why do you ultimately have this posture of submission? It's because you belong 
to God. So let's go uh, to that story from Jesus and Peter in Matthew where he's talking about this tax. So, so here's the setup. Someone says, hey, does your master even pay the tax? Does he just even do that? Is he just kind of out there in the wilderness doing his weird thing? Doesn't have to answer to us. And Peter says, yeah, he pays it. And he comes back and Jesus is talking to him. And he says, Peter, who, 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 who do they get their, their taxes from? Is it from, is it from the sons or from others? In other words, where does the authority get, gather this from? And he says, from the others. Therefore, the sons are free. In other words, you're free. <laughs> you're totally free. You belong to me. You don't belong to them. You belong to me. Don't get your identity mixed up here. Remember who you belong to. Nevertheless, so as not to give offense, go and pay the tax. Just go, go and pay it as a witness in this place. You're free to have a heart that submits where you are. You're free to not rail against every single thing you don't like or is inconvenient. You're free to humble yourself because you belong to me. You're a free servant of God. Right? This sounds almost like an oxymoron. You're free because you're owned. You're free because your life is totally submitted to God. Here is where there are three deep points we need to see. Number one, does the president or the governor have any ultimate final authority over you? None. Ultimately. You don't belong to him. You belong to Jesus. You're totally free and you belong to God. You're a citizen of a different nation looking forward to a final permanent home. You don't submit to federal or state laws. You don't follow the speed limit or keep your dogs on a leash in the city because you are owned by those places. You follow those things because he, because God is your master and he tells you to. This is a, a subjugated submission. This is a, a mediated submission. True freedom is complete servanthood to God. True freedom is a life completely submitted in every thought and action and emotion to God. True freedom is a life completely controlled by the Holy Spirit. Remember early in this book that we were purchased by Jesus, for obedience to Jesus Christ. This freedom in submitting to God includes submitting to his command to obey all governing authorities. You're free because you belong to God to do what he calls you to do. Second, we should not use our freedom in Jesus as a cover-up for evil. We should not rally for one political party, but then as soon as the other is elected, use our freedom in Christ to quickly mock and slander them. And use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Those things are still evil, no matter who you're doing it against. We should not sin in order that grace may abound. If you're passionate about the good of this place we live in as citizens of heaven, then be passionate to fight your own sin and fill this place with beautiful deeds that show the beauty of Jesus. If you find yourself more passionate about political issues going on than the sin going on in your own heart, you don't yet understand what true freedom is. If you find yourself more passionate about the political things going on out there than the sin that is still raging in your heart, you don't yet know what true freedom is. You haven't yet grasped onto your identity deep enough. Third, this freedom as servants of Jesus allows us to submit to authorities gladly where they do not call us to sin 
And it also allows us to resist governing authorities with respect when they ask us to sin, abandon our Savior, or legalize unrighteousness. Our freedom is found in having God as our ultimate master that has redeemed us so that we gladly walk contrary to sinful requirements and ungodly laws. So there are points where we need to do that. There are points that are legalized in our country right now where we need to stand against them. We can't stand for them. We can't be quiet about them, not because of the party they came from, but because of the Bible we believe. Putting all this together, it's a beautiful witness of the beauty and sufficiency and submission to our King and our freedom in Christ when Christians have a general posture of glad submission to the government wherever it is not asking them to sin. And this kind of glad doing good and submitting wherever we are will make the points where we must resist because of our allegiance to Jesus shine all the more as the beauty of His righteousness rather than the angry fist shaking of a people always frustrated when they didn't win. So so do you have this true freedom that can walk in these things? Do you have the freedom to submit to Jesus by submitting to the authorities? Just check your heart. Are you free there? Do you shine forth this beauty of Christ? Do you have this actual posture of submission? Are you as passionate in the fight against your sin as you are in the political fight? So what's the application? Well, it's nice when it's all written out for you, so we're just going to do verse 17. I think that's the application. So here, here are the four commands. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is not our home. We're called to beautiful conduct that shows the beauty of our king and our temporary home. No assimilation, no avoidance, no aggressiveness, but engagement with the righteous character of Christ and our hope in him. So here are the four commands. Let's take them one at a time. And I want to start with fear of God because it's foundational. So fear God. We obey Him. We belong to Him. We are His children. (laughs) We have been purchased by Him. Therefore, we have freedom to live in His power and for His glory. We don't ultimately have to fear anything else if we fear God as our Father. What, let me say this way, what should be dominating how you think about things how you interact with your friends on social media, how you make decisions about where you're going to stand or what you're going to do should be nothing before it's a trembling before God. That's how serious all of life is as servants of the King. All you do, all your decisions, all your interactions should be be made, be, be summarized, be understood by you first trembling before God. And if something else is making you tremble, is stirring you up, is dictating your heart, is dictating your mind, it's just out of place. Tremble before God first. This creates in us a holy passion. Creates in us a holy love. If we believe that we are who God says we are in Christ as those born again to a living hope, a future inheritance, purchased for obedience to Jesus, then we will realize that we are indeed a free people. We're free. 
free to fear our Father and free to submit our lives and worship to him and those he tells us to submit to like we were created to do. So fear God, tremble before him. Number two, out of this holy fear and freedom flows honor for all people. This is harder than we realize when we think about it. As we live in this place, everyone you interact with is an image bearer of God. They are worthy of your respect and your honor because they're made in his image. In a cancel culture, does your heart run to honor people around you? Right? Our culture says, I don't like you. Said something I don't like. You're literally canceled. You're gone. This, this says, honor all people. Does it say, honor the people on your side? Honor the people you agree with? Honor the people who are with you all the way from A to Z? Honor the people who make it with you to R? It says, honor all people. Does your heart work hard to honor those people that are diametrically opposed to you? Do you seek to do good to those with completely opposite political agendas and outside the kingdom of God? Or as a Christian, do you use their opposing views as justification to dishonor and disrespect them? So you'd say, well, we're in a crazy time. Sometimes you've got to do that stuff. Let me read you Luke 6, to 35. It says, and if you, this is Jesus, it says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But you love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He, the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Our God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And if we'll be like him, we'll be kind. We'll honor all people. Third, love the brotherhood. I've heard from some of you that this is hard right now. The, the events of our world have us disagreeing on how to proceed on a bunch of things. It's not a secret. We could pretend like that's not happening, but it is. So here's something to consider. If these things... By these things, I mean like mask wearing. If, if these things divide us, then it shows a sad reality of what was actually uniting us. Something cannot divide us unless it was uniting us. So if, if mask wearing divides us, it shows a sad reality of what was actually underneath, actually uniting us. Can you love brothers and sisters that disagree with you? Can you love brothers and sisters that take a different stance than you? Can you love brothers and sisters that don't agree with you on how serious something is? Not just disagree with you, but they just, they're just not where you are on level of importance. They don't have the time you have to give to this issue. Will you walk away or will you engage with love and reason with them? Will you draw near to them as members of a family or will you let your heart grow distant and cold?
My heart has broken and tears have been shed as I've seen disagreement turn to divide. Some of us are so right that we're wrong. Do you know what that means? (laughs) You're so right that you're wrong. I'm not asking you to not take a stance, to not speak for what you think is right. I'm asking you to love your brothers and sisters in it. I'm asking us to stand together and work through these things together and not need immediate answers or immediate resolutions. Is that how family works? (laughs) These things aren't built in a day. They don't get resolved in a day. I'm asking for us to remember who we are as a blood-bought family of the king. I'm asking you to decide if you mean it when you say that phrase. I'm glad we say it all the time. As long as we mean it. When things get hard in my family, I don't get to walk away. I don't get to bash someone over the head when they don't agree with me. I don't get to walk away because I think I'm more right. I'm pleading with you right now to confront unloving, uncharitable, impatient, self-righteous, and easily frustrated attitudes in your heart, especially towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm asking you to fight against an attitude that needs quick agreement instead of patient engagement. I'm asking you to fight against a heart that divides into camps instead of unites in Jesus and begins to figure out the rest together. Again, if we're divided this quickly, it shows that our unity may have been built on things much less important than the shed blood of Jesus and our sure resurrection hope. May it not be. If we're this impatient with each other, even if someone's mistaken, like people are right and wrong. I'm not saying no one's right and no one's wrong. There are right things and there are wrong things in the world. Our God is a God of truth. But even where someone is wrong, If we're this impatient with people and with each other, it shows we might not yet understand the patience of Christ with us in the gospel. Like we were missing all of reality before we saw him. It's a journey. It takes time. Will you grant that kind of patience, a sliver of patience compared to what we've received in Christ? Number four, honor the emperor. (laughs) in this time we live in where we are so so quick to disparage our leaders can you imagine this flat out command coming to this church with an unstable person like Nero ruling right I mean we we see this in our day from Jesus we're going okay Jesus canceling you You're, you're crazy you want us to submit to this guy I mean We can disagree, right, about someone and say, we're not sure how he did in handling how the city was on fire. Should he have done this faster or quicker? Imagine having to deal with someone who actually set the city on fire and then blame Christians. That's who this is written to. We can be upset and have opinions, and I'm okay with it, because someone didn't open churches back up fast enough, but imagine receiving this command with someone who would have hunted down churches and taken them to his palace and turned them into torches. This isn't easy, but I'm like, that's what was going on. It is hard 
for some of you to show honor to President Trump. That's hard for you. You must. You must honor him. It's a command. It's hard for some of you to honor Governor Waltz. You must. It's a command. This is uniquely Christian. We can stand against choices we see that are evil with peaceful opposition and yet be glad to submit wherever we are not asked to sin. We can disagree with policies and strategies and even character and yet show respect and honor. What might this look like? It might look like the church being those on social media calling for respect and civil discourse around our leaders rather than giving into the finger-pointing, name-calling, and quick-to-dishonor culture. We should be those praying for our leaders more than posting against them. I mean, j- just be honest with your own heart. Like, are, are you spending more time in prayer for that political leader that you disagree with most than you are reading all the articles you can to just work your heart up against them? Are you praying more or are you posting more? We should be those who are careful, thorough, and thoughtful in our criticism and not those known for flippant, careless, and sarcastic cynicism. They're made in the image of God. It's what's demanded of us. And yes, we should engage and disagree and participate. I'm not calling for us to stop that. It is a beautiful privilege we have here. We should not abandon it, but we have to do it and find a way to obey these commands. We can't just choose to engage or obey. We, we have to do both. We find our identity in the love of God for us in Christ. New nation, new priesthood, new hope, new home. We resist assimilation, avoidance, and aggressiveness, and we overflow in beautiful deeds of love that shine forth the character of Christ and show our hope in Christ to a watching world. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is hard. And God will help. Let's pray. So God, we do feel that the world is broken. But we do know a new creation is coming And so while we are here where we are, help us remember who we are in Christ. Help us remember that we are who you say we are, that we're free in Christ. And help us overflow in love and fill these suburbs and our neighborhoods and the nations with deeds of love that like our dear Linda Oatley would shine to the rest of the world that this is not our home. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church 
or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.